In Cleveland Heights, the question for residents is a matter of change. Signs lining the lawns urging the more than 32,000 voters in the city to either vote to keep or change the way they've governed themselves for 98 years. And let the chips fall where they may in November. Let the voters decide what's in the best interests of our city. Citizens for Good Government has conceded this election. We all care about this great city that we call home. We all want it to be better. The citizens of Cleveland Heights will have a say over who they want to be the mayor. Hi, I'm Adam Dew, host of Due Diligence. Thank you for joining us. I'm excited to finally put out our three mayoral candidate interviews here as we uh, plow towards uh, the primary on September 14th uh, for our first ever elected mayor here in Cleveland Heights. We recorded four interviews. Josie Moore, uh, um, the fourth candidate, has recently suspended her campaign. So you're only going to be seeing three of the four uh, interviews with Cleo Saren, Melody Hart, and with Barbara Danforth. As always, Due Diligence is brought to you by my company, Do Media Inc. We do video production of all types, live streaming, corporate, nonprofit, uh, political ads even. Uh, we helped flip a district on the west side recently working with Monique Smith to, uh, to win her state uh, house seat. We're also brought to you by um, Eric Silverman's companies, uh, which are Heights Clothing Company, uh, Spiritwear, and uh, Dude About Town, which is Eric's art photography company. So check him out online. And, uh, and also, of course, the Heights Observer. I can't thank them enough for getting behind this podcast concept. And I hope that these interviews are useful as people decide, uh, make a big decision here coming up. Early voting starts August 17th. And again, that primary September 14th uh, will whittle down the field from three to two. So get your, uh, get your votes in in the next month. Welcome to Due Diligence, our final mayoral interview here with Khalil Saren. Uh, Khalil, thank you so much for joining us. Um, appreciate you taking the time. Set the scene for me. Where are we uh, right now? So we are on the green roof, greenish roof of the county administration headquarters uh, at 2079 uh, East 9th. Uh, we are overlooking the baseball stadium uh, for the Cleveland baseball franchise. It recently announced a name change that I think we all welcomed. Um, just enjoying beautiful weather um, in Northeast Ohio today. So um, we're in this spot. We have access to this spot. Why? Tell us about uh, your current position and where, uh, what your current uh, line of work is. Sure. So. I, you know, in, in professionally, I work as a policy advisor for Cuyahoga County Council. Um, I work primarily in economic development, workforce development, community development, policy, uh, and programming, uh, but also, you know, a variety of other things um, that the county deals with. It's a small policy staff, uh, so pretty much uh, everything that we work on goes through all of the staff. Um, so I've, I've been working for the county council for about 10 years now, a little over 10 years. And, you know, since the new government started, um, working on first a lot of transitional issues and then, um, you know, sh sort of shaping the new county government and creating uh, departments and new functions and, and then sort of gradually getting into the swing of things and, and you know, getting some progress for the county. Uh, are there any initiatives that you played a key role in here uh, that you were most proud of? Yeah, you know, so 
There are a few. I think the creation of the Department of Sustainability was a big one. Um, you know, I worked with our uh, councilwoman, Sunny Simon, uh, to, to help design a, a sustainability department that focuses not only on the internal operations of the county, but radiates that attention outward and seeks to create a more environmentally sustainable um, you know, set of processes for the community, for the, the county at large. So we're helping municipalities um, and residents sort of achieve a greater level of sustainability in everything that we do. Uh, that's a big one. Another one, an early, early one, um, sort of created the Department of Consumer Affairs. So initially, uh, our council uh, person, former council president, Dan Brady, um, had the idea that we should take the authority of the county auditor from state law and use that authority to create a Department of Consumer Affairs because the state auditor has wide-ranging you know, authority to deal with consumer issues, um, not just the weights and measures aspect mm -hmm. of, of county government. And so in this new county government structure, we sort of took the authority of the county auditor through the fiscal officer and supplemented that with some county authority, municipal authority that we gained as a charter county and created a new department, the Department of Consumer Affairs. We folded in the weights and measures uh, function into that department as a division. Um, did some, I think some needed sort of ethical uh, tightening up just to make sure that, that things are functioning in the way that they should. Um, and, and I think over the years it's provided some real value to people getting scammed in this county, uh, to people who need assistance knowing whether or not they, you know, that something's a good deal or something's too good to be true. Um, so that's another one that I'm proud of. And then I think lastly, um, the work that we did in housing is really important. So putting together, uh, I, you know, I, I drafted the $50 million demolition program and the $30 million housing program uh, in collaboration with the land bank, um, putting that together to sort of help create a, a canvas for redevelopment in the county. So taking down the worst of the worst housing and then trying to strengthen housing submarkets in the county in a variety of ways. So the, the demolition program that I'm assuming created a bunch of empty lots that, you know, the, the empty lots in Cleveland were not part of that demolition program? Some of them were. Oh, they were. Yeah, yeah. So we, I believe we provided, um, I could be getting my figures a little bit wrong, but I think it's somewhere around six or seven hundred thousand dollars to Cleveland Heights for demolition, residential demolition. And so the work that we did in Cleveland Heights set the stage for the redevelopment that we are going to see moving forward. I think that it's important you you want to it's it's never good to see sort of that missing tooth, you know, uh, broken line of houses in a neighborhood. But when a house is dragging home values down and presenting health and safety uh, issues for a neighborhood. Removing that blight from a, a neighborhood increases home values in and of itself, but then it also provides that opportunity for redevelopment. So, Are there still homes in Cleveland Heights that are worthy of, of demolition? Absolutely. So 
it's a, it's a difficult proposition. You, you never want to demolish a home. You don't want to be in a position where you have to. And some homes in some locations are candidates for demolition when they might not be in other locations. And that's just a question of market forces and whether or not there's credit available to do things like home renovation in a particular neighborhood. Some of that has to do with, I'm gonna get into the weeds a little bit. Some of that has to do with sort of appraisal gap work. Um, if a house can't appraise for what it would take to renovate it, then it is very difficult to get the funds to renovate that house. Right. Um, and so what you find is that in some locations, it's easier to get funding to renovate houses uh, and that's sort of where the public sector comes in and that's where the the 30 million dollar housing program comes in we're trying to address the appraisal gap issues um, i'm actually i'm on a, a subcommittee of this council the county council's community development committee that is looking at appraisals as well and how we um, work through those issues to try to get more access to funding for re rehabs and renovations so that we can avoid demolitions. You are currently the vice mayor uh, uh, in Cleveland Heights? Technically, right? technically no. Oh, I'm sorry. So the charter change. Um, oh, you're not allowed to call yourself that anymore, right? Right, right. Okay. as of uh, January 1, they, okay. they got rid of those titles. So okay. I'm still council vice president. Right, okay. But I was, and this is something that I think is important just for representation's sake. And so I, I let people know, I, I was the first black man to be selected by council for a leadership position on this council. So I was the first black man to be vice mayor in Cleveland Heights 100 year history. Um, and so I, you know, I, I try to let people know that so that they can see that, you know, representation on their council, representation in leadership. I'm only the second black man to be elected to council in Cleveland Heights history. Which sounds crazy. It is. I, when, yeah. I, I, when I learned that, I was shocked. I didn't even think to ask. Because it just, yeah. Um, you've been a resident of Cleveland Heights since 2010. You've been on council for six years. Um, and my understanding, I would, I would put you in the corner of someone who thought that moving to an elected mayor was a good thing, right? So uh, where did you stand on that and why are you running? All right, so before the, the ballot initiative that ultimately got on the ballot started, there was a long conversation that residents were having about a variety of things. One of them was like, you know, a blended, potentially blended ward at large system for council. Another was this elected mayor um, with administrative authority. So this was a conversation that was being had. I was not a part of sort of the initial conversations that were being had in the community and with some elected officials talking about making this change. But generally I supported the idea because I saw some issues with the city manager form of government in Cleveland Heights specifically. Um, and some of those issues were purely structural. And sort of the structure influences the culture. Mm -hmm. And you can try to make changes within a structure that influences the culture, but cu what is it? Culture eats strategy for breakfast, right? So unless you change the influences on that culture, your strategic work is not going to make the changes that you want to. So I saw some need for changes to the structure. I'm, um, yeah, and I'm someone who, who thought Tanisha Briley was 
probably fantastic at her job, right? It wasn't Tanisha Bradley to me wasn't the problem, the city manager. It was that Cleveland Heights, but the form of government caused a lot of the issues that we're now trying to dig out of, right? Like well, in terms of slow to act, complacency, mm. uh, that sort of thing. Like that form of government works great to me in a city where uh, things are on all cylinders, right? Right. Yeah, when you don't have the challenges that entering suburbs in Northeast Ohio have, um, it might be, you know, completely acceptable to have a city manager to manage. Um, but in a, in a city like Cleveland Heights, where we are dealing with forces that are beyond our control, forces of sprawl, um, you know, migration to the exurbs, um, an expansion and oversaturation of retail, uh, and and sort of being landlocked and and you know all of these concerns and then you know other questions of poverty concentration and and a resegregation of our city in certain respects. City management is not the way to go when you need leadership. Now, there were some things that I was not happy with our previous city manager on, like specific things that I had issues with, but that wasn't the point. Mm -hmm. The point was that when you have a city manager form of government, it is focused on the, the interior issues of the government. It's focused on the operations of the government and it's not necessarily uh, something that is sort of conducive to bringing in input from the residents. Mm -hmm. um, they're looking at expediency which is why you get issues like privatizing our water system as a recommendation from a city manager form of government when anybody who knows the community would know that there would be an outcry against it. Right. Um, but when you're just focused on, let's look at this on paper and not think about the priorities and values of the community, um, you can run into those kinds of issues where the values and priorities of the community don't get reflected in the city government, and that was one of the major reasons why I thought we needed a change. On your website, you talk about getting the basics of government right. Yes. What are some of the basics that you'd focus on improving if you are elected mayor? So, little things like when we get a complaint about, I don't know, the condition of a curb that's been damaged by, you know, the way that we pick leaves and yard waste up. Um, well, how is that handled by the city government? How can we make sure that from a systemic standpoint, we are addressing those things consistently and, and reliably, but also effectively, uh, and making sure that we are uh, taking care of the problems that residents have in a timely fashion and to their satisfaction? How do we know we're doing that? Well, unless we're keeping track of our data, and that includes resident complaints and it includes uh, resident compliments, you know, when we've done a good job, all of that needs to go into the database. All of that needs to inform how we're doing the job. So the basic municipal services, picking up the garbage, refuse and recycling, paving the streets, clearing the streets of snow, um, ensuring that we are maintaining our, you know, our, our tree lawn trees, you know, all of these things that, that really go into sort of that basic government service, even policing and um, whether or not you can get a permit for, you know, renovating a building or uh, a point of sale inspection when you're trying to sell a house. 
All of those things need to be done well before you can start doing the, the more expansive, growth-oriented, progress-oriented initiatives. You need to get those basics right first. Are there things that you think we can do right away? That you, Absolutely, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, One of those things, I, I think we're, we're sort of working on some of those things now. Mm -hmm. um, like garbage, we are changing garbage as we speak. There's yeah. some things that, I mean, I think in some ways this initiative has lit a fire under council to some degree, it which has. I think has been good. Mm -hmm. You know, I think you see Top of the Hill and Lee Meadowbrook, you know, I think that, uh, yes, it feels like there's been a fire lit a little bit. That yeah. People are acting with a little more sense of urgency, uh, even the folks who were against uh, moving to this form of government. I think one of the things, it's, it's been interesting. So when, when the issue was, you know, moving toward the ballot, there was a push from people who opposed moving to a strong mayor. I think in part because they wanted to show the community, hey, we can do things too under this form of government. Um, so maybe you don't have to vote yes. You know, I it should have I, taken that though. It should not have taken that to that's how I felt to deal the with the EPA, yeah. to deal with. Uh, um, well, and some of the stuff is, is far gone. It's like, would Severance have been different, you know, if we had an elected mayor at the time? Would Oakwood have been different? Like, if we'd had someone being proactive that had the authority to be proactive, would that have turned out differently for the city of Cleveland Heights and South Euclid? That, that right. sort of joint thing that could have been. Well, Not a Walmart. You, I'll you know? tell you this. Yeah. Like, I, I, that's me. I look back on the history and think, bam, bam, bam. You know, like there's, there can't be any more can kicking in Cleveland Heights, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think sort of aggressive and bold action is required, especially since we're catching up. You know, that's sort of the position that we're in right now in Cleveland Heights is that there has been a lot of can kicking. And so we need to catch up, which means we need to start strong, you know, just off the blocks, full speed ahead kind of, kind of uh, approach. Now, when it comes to severance, I want to speak to severance specifically. I'm not sure that just having a mayor in office would have changed how Severance went. I think it depends on who the mayor is. I think it depends on whether or not the mayor has credible and ongoing relationships with developers um, and an understanding of how to redevelop you know, land in the city. I think that that's important and it's an important piece and I think a really good example, recently I had a conversation with a couple who is renovating a commercial structure in Shaker Heights right now. They are a manufacturing firm, light manufacturing, prototyping, and they are renovating a, a, a facility on Lee Road right down the street from us. Uh, I think it's a fantastic project. I think it's fascinating. And they looked for spaces in Cleveland Heights. Um, now, they didn't say anything bad about sort of the service that they received in, in working with the city uh, in Cleveland Heights, but they did not find something in Cleveland Heights. What they did mention, though, is that one of the things that really helped them find the place that they're in now was a conversation with Mayor Weiss, who helped open up some doors between them, a particular property owner, the school district who was in that property that they are currently in to help create an agreement that worked for all three. And that kind of access, even if Mayor Weiss wasn't doing sort of the, the 
heavy on the ground economic development. There's work. no history of that type of collaboration in Cleveland Heights. Well, you not know, with the school, not not generally to make an economic development project like that happen. There's always been a, it's there's the frictions always present. It, well, you know, right? I think part of the part of the issue is that we don't have that sort of regular, ongoing, you know, at least from the electeds. I think it's more difficult to have that kind of relationship in in a certain respect. But I think also a relationship with the building owners, with the the, the people who, you know, own the properties that we might want to attract firms to. Um, and, and having that conversation and then being able to pick up the phone and, and talk with the school district is important too as sort of the, the person who can make a decision. And the mayor can do that. So Mayor Weiss was able to pick up the phone and create some, some conversation that assisted in that development. And I think if you have a mayor in office who can do that, then things like severance maybe can be avoided or corrected. In doing my research for this uh, interview, I, I was surprised to find uh, an article of support from uh, East Cleveland Mayor Brandon King in support of having the jail on the Arco dump site. I was surprised to see that he supports that. Why do you think he supports that? I would think that the residents of both Cleveland Heights and East Cleveland would take a firm stand against it. So, I, for one, I don't want to sort of step in front of the elected officials who are elected to represent their communities and the decision-making sure. process that they go and through. And your bosses here probably are in on that issue too, like well, where, and that's election, right? Like, I, is, it, is East Cleveland still on the table? I think right now, all options are on the table. So I, I don't think that we are Including in a severance? situation. <laughs> I don't think severance is on the table. And the reason why I don't yeah. think severance is on the table is because I don't believe that, A, our community, I certainly would not, allow, you know, that, yeah. that's not something that I would support right. um, or, or contribute to. But, but I think that when it comes to East Cleveland making the decisions for East Cleveland, I know our border is, is it affects both of us. Sure. Um, but, you know, East Cleveland makes decisions for East Cleveland. When they decided that they wanted to proactively engage with um, federal immigration enforcement um, to uh, to work with them on sort of civil immigration enforcement, which I think has detrimental effects on people that we should be looking care out about and be looking yeah. out for. You know, they made that decision for them. I would make a different decision. Were they? And they? And I'm to sort of recap that. You supported an initiative that said that Cleveland Heights would not work with uh, immigration enforcement, right? Like you, our police department would not actively report uh, people in violation of, of immigration issues. I mean, I'm guessing East Cleveland was afraid of losing federal funds. Was that the threat that they were afraid of? That was, what, is that why they did that? That's part of it. I think yeah. the other piece is that uh, they entered into a contract, and I, I, I'm a little spotty on the details because I wasn't following their, their process very closely because that's a different jurisdiction but um, they entered into a contract where I believe they would be funded by the federal government and they have different financial concerns than we do in Cleveland Heights um, and so you know their considerations you know are, are different than ours um, I still think it's the wrong move because I think that the way that the federal government has treated people who are seeking asylum or who have overstayed their visas is punitive and draconian and does not 
create benefit for society as a whole. I think that there are ways to address criminals who are making our, our community less safe without negatively impacting people who are here because they want to contribute, because they want to have a better life. Um, so I, I think that the civil immigration enforcement piece of it and sort of going after criminals who are making our community less safe are two completely different issues. Um, and in that way, I think that they made the wrong choice, but they, they, they had a financial incentive to do that. The initiative that I wrote was sort of based on ACLU's Freedom Cities initiatives. And um, so that was in accordance with federal law. So, you know, it wasn't something that violated any responsibilities that we have um, or that, you know, that, that, that city has or that our police have or, you know, employees generally in the city um, to follow federal law. But what it did was it removed us from the enforcement of federal civil immigration enforcement. Mm -hmm. So, you know, not allowing civil immigration enforcement officials to use our facilities to do their jobs without, you know, wearing identification. Yeah. So when they're talking with somebody who's in our custody, that person knows who they're talking to. Um, you know, the, the idea that we need to find out whether or not somebody is a citizen or uh, overstayed their visa or, you know, whether they're, you know, it, it, based on what? How does that necessarily impact whether or not this person saw, you know, a, a vehicle get broken into? Sure. It doesn't, you know, it, unless there is a legitimate law enforcement purpose unrelated to civil immigration enforcement, my initiative would remove that from our work at the city. Is that sort of like, I think I've heard from some people, it's sort of like they equate it though to us being a nuclear free zone. They're not going to transport nuclear waste through Cleveland Heights. Is it? Is immigration like? Is that a really an issue in Cleveland Heights? Is it potential? Is it? Is it something you've seen that needed to be addressed? So I think this is the problem. It's like it, if you wait, and we did actually, like we had somebody who sought sanctuary at a church in Cleveland Heights. Oh, I know, right? yeah, for sure. No, um, John, John Lentz married me and my wife, so I know. <laughs> I know Forest Hill Church very well. Yeah, yeah. And no, that's true. No, so that, it hits is home. that what is that what initiated the even? talking no, the no. discussion or was this before she took uh, sanctuary there this was before so i i started working on this because a, a group of residents for months reached out to the administration to try to create an administrative policy that would restrict uh city employees generally not just law enforcement but city employees generally from uh, from doing, you know, civil immigration enforcement's job for them mm -hmm. at the federal level. I got it. And they were ignored for months. Ultimately, uh, they came to me and I, I drafted some policy. So uh, our next, our first mayor uh, is the, a major issue over the next 10 to 20 to 30 years mm -hmm. is going to be how we manage our relationship with the EPA yeah. uh, moving forward. And that, that consent decree you're here at the county, we're at the county building. Why wasn't this dealt with collectively? Why wasn't there some regionalism at work here? Because all the inter-ring suburbs have the same problem, right? Yeah. Was that ever discussed? Like, or is that another issue where, like, if we had an elected mayor that could work with the other mayors in the region, that this could have had a different outcome uh, potentially for us? And where does it stand right now? Right, so this is, this is something that came up in that Plain Dealer endorsement interview. Um, and 
one of the, the issues that we face right now is the, is the result of this kicking the can down the road that we've experienced in Cleveland Heights. And, and to our previous city manager's credit, um, when Tanisha Briley came on board, she changed the city's approach to, the, to dealing with the EPA and dealing with the Department of Justice on this issue. The, the city manager before her, uh, basically I believe, if I, if I get my, my, my facts right on this, um, kept counsel in the dark on a lot of things and somehow thought that it was wise to simply ignore the EPA. Like that they would just go away? I have no idea what the, what the rationale was or how they, how, they, how they rationalized that, how they justified that. But the EPA um, grew to have an understanding of Cleveland Heights government as a government that doesn't care about these issues, that doesn't care about the Clean Water Act, that it isn't interested in correcting these problems or working with them. And so we had a lot of work to do to repair that relationship and let them know, no, we are, in, this is an issue that this community cares about. We want our lake to be clean. We want our waterways to be healthy. Um, and the mismanagement of this issue is a fluke that we need to correct. Um, so, so we had a lot of work to do to repair that. Um, I think that we did a lot of good work um, in changing the conversation from sort of a, a strict um, response from the EPA that said, okay, we see all these problems, you know, hey, you might have to spend a half a billion dollars to, to correct these things, right? Maybe more. And instead of that, we, we got to a point where we can do sort of a phased approach, where the first phase is, what is it that we really need to do in order to correct these problems? Not sort of the everything is on the table approach that is extremely expensive, not necessarily effective, and not based in the actual conditions underground. Uh, so the first phase is figuring out exactly what the state of our system is and using that information while we're doing some repairs that need to be done immediately to figure out what we really need to do, how much it's gonna cost, and how we can negotiate and work with the EPA to get those improvements done that are necessary to be in compliance with federal law. Because we wanna be- What's the be... danger though, right? What's the danger? If we say, like sort of the, the, the previous city manager approach of, what are you gonna do, bankrupt the city of Cleveland Heights over this? Like we can't afford this, right? You, we are, sewer rates are already extremely high. Uh, we are like the federal government, the county government, somebody else is going to have to come in and fix a problem that the people, the current residents of Cleveland Heights did, did not, not create. create. Absolutely. So how, that should be the, that should be the approach, right? I mean, well, that's is certainly that, the conversations like, that I'm having, right? Uh, you know, I, I, and I think those are the conversations that I will be having next year as mayor. Um, working with the EPA and letting them know the conditions on the ground, letting them know, because it is an important consideration what our residents can bear, what our city can bear, and the fact that, yes, we did not create this situation. The people on the ground that have to deal with the decisions made 100 years ago, um, yeah, we have to deal with it, but we can't deal with it alone. We can't go it alone. And, and that's been the approach in Ohio, sort of where this, what they call a little box state. We've got these little jurisdictions and there is almost an incentive against regional collaboration. 
And, and the reason why is because we've got these strong home rule uh, capabilities, except when the state wants to preempt. But on these things, on these funding issues, on these infrastructure issues, the state doesn't want to come in and provide as much assistance as they should. Um, so, so we're in a tough spot, but I believe that uh, you know, a, a mayor can work with the EPA, work with the Department of Justice, and they will see reason, and they will see what our actual capacity is, and they don't want to bankrupt the city. You know, that can't be their motivation, but they do want us to fix these problems uh, and be in compliance. We just need to figure out how best to make that happen. I think they'll be reasonable and flexible with us. A couple more questions. Uh, one of the reasons we have all this money to potentially throw at this problem right now is because we are designated a major metro area by the, uh, by the United States government, essentially, correct? Yeah, correct. So I, I was doing some reading this morning. There was a movement to maybe, maybe change it to where the threshold was 100,000 people, and a lot of cities would lose their major metro status. Uh, right now, I think we're grandfathered in at 50,000 anyway, right? Can you explain, should we be concerned about, is, that, is losing our major metro status on the table right now? Is that a possibility? Okay, so with the caveat that everything's a possibility, um, and I wouldn't put it past the, the federal government to make those kinds of changes, I think that there is an understanding. Certainly, I believe that there's an understanding on the part of housing and urban development, and I believe that there's an understanding on the part of the representatives who serve a wide variety of smaller cities and suburbs that will not meet that 100,000 population threshold. There's an understanding that we still have those challenges that federal funds help with. Um, so, so people are pressuring Marsha Fudge to, on that issue, you think? Is it Euclid and Parma and, and Cleveland Heights, those cities that have that designation, that need that designation? You think that there's some, is, like, like we have, we should have our best friend possible right now in housing and urban development, right? Well, this is the thing. I think that Marshall Fudge, uh, Secretary Fudge, is someone who is intimately familiar with this region and the challenges that we face here. And so I don't know that we have an unsympathetic ear at HUD when we, you know, approach them and, and, and you know, try to work with them to make sure that, that we still receive the assistance that we need in order to create communities that are healthy, that are thriving. Um, you know, as, as sort of inner ring suburbs, we've got specific challenges, but we don't necessarily have the same access to resources that our central city has. And so our work with the federal government is extremely important. Now, I don't wanna, I don't wanna comment on, and I can't comment on sort of the, the other mayors or other communities efforts to work with HUD. I do know that county government um, and certainly I as mayor will be lobbying our, you know, our, our new secretary and lobbying our congressional delegation to maintain the support that is so desperately needed in this region and all across the country. Uh, I think that it would be short-sighted and a mistake to increase that threshold. I think that's always on the table to reduce like CDBG funding. Right. And we've seen a reduction over the years in that funding and it's affected us. Um, well, we're lucky to have that status at all, right? We, yeah. Our last census was 46,000 people. Yeah. The threshold's supposed to be 50,000. Do we even, 
is there a form we filled out? Like, how did we get grandfathered in anyway? And how do we maintain that status is my concern because our population is going to drop probably by 1500 to 2000 probably is the guess, right? The guess is like maybe 43. Yeah. I think that's, that's okay. sort of the guess for Cleveland Heights right now. Um, in my understanding, anyway. That to me seems like somebody you'd be in danger. It's of, dangerous. Of not being grandfathered this in is, anymore. This is a tentative, like sort of a, honestly, there is no, as far as I can tell, structural and concrete um, reason for our maintained uh, status as an record. entitlement community. Right. Um, I know specifically East Cleveland has been specifically denoted as an entitlement community. Um, and we don't have that same status. We haven't been given that same status and communities around the region haven't been given that same status either. The difficulty, family sizes are smaller and that's a major part of the reduction in population, not necessarily a huge reduction in households in the, in the, the city, but we do need to figure out ways to increase our density so that we can, and increase our diversity of housing offerings so that we can attract more and different types of people to the city to contribute to population gain. I think that that's something that we need to focus on in an effort to stave off the potential for a change in status. It, it, we, need to, we need to be focused on that. It's been great. A uh, couple, couple more things, I'll let you go. We'll do maybe a little more rapid fire on a couple of local issues. Sure. If you're capable of rapid fire, I don't know if you are or not. Well, but. I'll try. <laughs> Um, There's a lot of data and a lot of detail uh, in these things. Man. Right. Uh, to me, parking, we're not going back to quarters and meters in Cleveland Heights, I wouldn't think, right? Is that really, I mean, does that make sense in this day and age? Do uh, you support keeping parking free as long as we can? It seems like people worry about overcrowding. I think this has been a good test case for the lots are not necessarily mm. overcrowded. What do you fit? Where do you stand on that? So. My starting point is that if we can do it, we should keep parking free. Um, I don't know necessarily that this period of time where we've been under certain restrictions um, is an, an appropriate test. I think as we start to... This summer we're open though. Like this should be a good test. Well, it could be. It could be. But it depends on, you know, opening back up sort of officially doesn't necessarily like the, the behavior change might be a lagging indicator. Okay. So we might find that behaviors change a little bit later because people are still a little bit concerned and they don't necessarily want to spend a great deal of time around other people yet. They want to see how things go. And also, since we are not doing great with uh, compliance with vaccination, uh, the mutation of this virus and you know various variants of the virus, people might get concerned again. Yeah. We could even find a situation where we have to go through other restrictions, uh, another wave of restrictions. I don't know how that's gonna play out. Um, so we need to take a look at the behavior. I think that we need to keep it free as long as possible to allow our businesses, our small businesses, our business districts, um, you know, a bit of time and grace to, to get back on their feet and, and make some progress there. But to the degree that we can, I think that we should offer free parking. Um, and, and go from there. That's the starting point. There is going to be a contingent of people who want to bring back parking meters and paid parking. No um, one wants to bring meters back, quarters. 
I think that no I mean, one. They're going to. We're going to be. They're going to. The federal government's going to end change, and we're still going to have parking meters. Like that's the old thinking to me. Like that's that's got to go. Agreed. But I still believe that there will be a contingent of people, primarily, my guess is in the government, and not necessarily in the populace, um, who are interested on the strict basis of how are we going to fund maintenance of our lives. And I, I get that inclination and that sort of one-to-one -one relationship between source and use of funds. At the same time, we need to be more creative about how we maintain those lots, um, what the capacity and what the need is for surface parking, certainly in, in certain business districts and, and that kind of thing. And we need to take a, an ongoing look at churn and how it impacts our businesses. If we find that you know customers can't find parking spots, because long-term parkers are parking there for weeks at a time or something like that, then maybe we need to adjust certain things and make different ratios um, of paid to free parking. But I think that there is sort of that starting point needs to be, let's eliminate these meters. Certainly let's eliminate quarters. That's ridiculous. And they're an eyesore at a minimum, right? Yeah. They're all, half of them are tipped over. Like, let's, you know, you know like, what? Let's replace some of those meters with charging stations for electric, electric vehicles, not even, you know? Yeah, right. We, I was just, that was something I was thinking about driving up this morning. I was like, I was in Chillicothe, Ohio last year uh, and they have some EV charging stations. Do we even have a single EV charging station in Cleveland Heights? Anywhere? Not one at City Hall? No, and there are grant funds available. Um, you know, I, this is a, this in primarily this feels like a capacity issue for me um, and a priorities issue. Uh, you know, we just entered into a partnership with Power Clean Future Ohio. Um, using that technical expertise and the access to resources through that organization, we can sort of ease the way to getting grants, to uh, encouraging electric vehicle usage and providing the infrastructure in our city. I mean, you know, we're a city that supports this. Our government should too, it should be a priority. So we have to go for those grants. We have to create the infrastructure in our city to support that kind of conversion. So uh, we've been very fortunate in Cleveland Heights, knock on wood, uh, you know, we've had we haven't had many moments of major crisis, right? Like you see, like, you know, that sort of engulf a city, right? Yeah. We've been very fortunate. Uh, a lot of inner ring suburbs, Minneapolis, outside of Minneapolis, have had a lot of major issues. So, I, and I meant, I should have asked the other candidates about this and I didn't, but like, at some point there's gonna, you have to go into crisis mode, right? Mm. Are you prepared to be that person to run a city that's in crisis mode if it happens? Absolutely. I think sort of the first the first step is information gathering as rapidly as possible. So as mayor, I will be on call. Crisis happens. Everyone will know to contact me. Um, and, and I think so the first step is, you know, fire hose information download to get as much information as we have about a situation as possible. And then as immediately as possible, provide information to the residents of the city. And we've got various channels to do that. We've got our social media, we've got a ready notify, um, you know, all of these ways that we can contact the people proactively to provide the information that we have up to the minute at that point. So that 
people know the shape of it, the general shape of an emergency, um, so that we can provide immediate instructions if there are any, or so that we can say, hey, your city government is responding to this. We don't have all the details yet. Know that we are working on getting the details and we will provide you as much information as we possibly can as soon as we have it. That's the first step, sort of making sure that the public is appraised of the things that are a threat to them so that they can keep themselves safe and so that they know if there's not a threat to them so that they can feel comforted and feel safe. Um, so that's the first step. And then it's really a question of getting down and doing the work and making sure that me as the, you know, the head of the government is not getting in the way of the people who are doing the work, but providing as much resource from the city government, coordinating department response in order to provide the resources that are necessary to achieve the goals that we want to, to resolve whatever the emergency is. And, and also the relationships that we have here, emergency management here um, and working with the county in order to resolve these things with our emergency services, with other cities emergency services to address crisis mode um, is important. I'm absolutely ready to deal with that at a moment's notice. Uh, last thing, I should have asked this earlier. I've, I've, had, I've been curious, what's the state of our um, IT in terms of uh, security in the city, right? You've seen Baltimore uh, have to pay hackers mm. uh, ransom, you know, or did they, I forget if Baltimore paid or not. Maybe Baltimore didn't pay, I forget. But like, it's so common now yeah. uh, for these cities to be held hostage. What's the state of our, uh, of our security infrastructure in Cleveland Heights? So I think that for one, I want to just give a, a nice shout out to Jim Lambden, um, who is, you know, moving on from the city, but you know, has, has created sort of a good legacy of IT infrastructure at the city in progress, I think, um, and, and sort of created a foundation that we can move forward on. I think we've been fortunate, um, but there's always a concern because the primary sort of point of entry or weak point for an organization is the people in the organization. Um, so me, as an elected official, I have a city email. Now, I've got some training in you know, IT security and here at the county I know that there are certain things to think of as suspicious and I tend toward um, looking at things with a skeptical eye when they come through my email and that kind of thing. Uh, but not everybody is necessarily as adept at that. And so we have put in place uh, you know, the spam filters that people have and you know, information that goes out to people about, hey, if you see this, don't click this link. This is a suspicious email. Um, but I think that having a regular sort of training for elected officials and city employees, and there is, there is you know, information for city employees, but uh, regular training, even for the elected officials, um, is an important step toward hardening the target at the city. But there's always the concern, and there's no, this is the thing, there is no permanent um, fix to this problem because the threat is always evolving. Uh, so what we have to do is just stay on top of it and, and make sure that we are in regular contact with um, you know, the security initi initiatives at the FBI um, and, and working with their IT security people to make sure that we are dealing with best practices at the city. So 
probably a long-winded non-specific answer, but I think the, the, the short the short answer is we've been, A, we've been lucky, but I think we've also put in place some, some things that are helpful, but there are other things that we could do. We don't have to regularly change our passwords. Um, that's something that I think we need to put in place. I think that we need to have a, a regular schedule of updating passwords, strong passwords, um, in order to minimize the possibility. We'll never eliminate the possibility, but to minimize the possibility, there are certain basic things that we do need to put in place. Uh, anything else you'd like to tell the people of Cleveland Heights uh, as they make the decision? What's your final um, pitch to why folks should choose you? Um, and when? what's the date on the primary for us? Yeah, yeah, actually, so uh, first thing, I wanna make sure that the people of Cleveland Heights know that you wanna get registered by August 16th in order to vote in this primary. Um, and make sure that even if you are registered or you think you've registered, just take a look. Go to boe.cuyahogacounty.us and look up your registration to make sure that you're registered at your current address, to make sure that you haven't been uh, purged from the voting rolls. Uh, just, just make sure. And if you're not on there, just register by August 16th. Early voting starts August 17th for the mayoral primary and then primary election day is September 14th. And I hope that we have a high turnout. I hope that people are energized and excited about the prospect of selecting the head of our administrative branch. But I know that this can be a confusing time because we've got this congressional and then we've got the first primary for a mayor in the history of our city and people aren't familiar. So please check your registration, vote early if you want to. Um, and, and vote September by September 14th. Um, now, why you should vote for me, I think there's been a lot of talk about experience in this election. And so I wanna talk a little bit about my experience. Um, for the last 10 years, I've been working in local government at the regional level. I am intimately aware of the challenges that cities all across our region face. And I am very familiar with the challenges that Cleveland Heights faces having been on council for the last six years. So that experience matters. It is specific to the challenges and the opportunities that we have in Cleveland Heights as we enter this new chapter. Uh, working with economic development, community development work, uh, making sure that our residents are connected with opportunities for advanced training um, and, and job placement services, the workforce development piece that cities don't always really engage with. That's the kind of work that I wanna do. We need to proactively reach out to our residents to make sure that they are taking advantage of all the opportunities that this region has to offer. And that's something that I'll do as mayor. Full-time mayor, on the job, every single day working for Cleveland Heights, bringing my expertise in local government to bear to face our challenges. And I would really appreciate your support. Get to know me, sarinformayor.com, where you can find me on all of the social medias, um, I look forward to reaching out and speaking with you throughout this campaign and, and beyond. So thank you. Khalil cool, Saren, on behalf of the Heights Observer, uh, we thank you for joining us and best of luck. Thank you.